0: And welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain.
1: And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which now feels like it was back in the Ice Age.
0: Yeah, I think I was a woolly mammoth when we began, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're looking at Leopoldstadt, Tom Stoppard's latest play that premiered at the Wyndhams Theatre in London in February 2020. Directed by Patrick Marber, Leopoldstadt follows the rise and fall of a sprawling secular and urbane Jewish family in Vienna from ebullience and optimism at the fin to near-total destruction after the war. It was hailed as grand, contemplative, and elegiac by The Guardian, a brilliant, unrevivable undertaking by The Spectator, unforgettable by The Telegraph, while The Independent raved, Tom Stoppard's shiveringly sensual journey through the terrible 20th century is a masterpiece.
1: I have to say, I like shiveringly sensual. I mean, journalists love alliteration. Um, if I can throw one more review in, Uh, Time Out finished its long review by saying that this is Stoppard's play which sees him going out on a high. This vanished world, the Jewish world of Vienna, can hopefully live on a little longer, thanks to the last great writer of the 20th century. And that sense of Stoppard's status as the last great 20th century writer, I think really explains the sense of anticipation that builds up um, whenever any of his new plays are uh, premiered. Stoppard now is 82. He said that this is probably going to be his final work for the stage. And I think some of the buzz has also been a fascination with the fact that this is a more personal kind of play than some of the cerebral, um, much more kind of intellectual plays that he's written previously. Um, Zoe, did we see Rock and Roll together? Tom, I think we did. What did you think of it?
0: I mean, I probably am not the best person to ask about Rock and Roll because I I found it boring. I'm not going to lie. What did you think of it?
1: (laughs) I mean, I I agree with you. I didn't have a brilliant night in the theatre, but it's interesting because that dealt with his Czech heritage. Um, And this is another play that is going slightly more personal than we're used to, um, and really spotlighting his own kind of quite traumatic childhood. Um, Tom Stoppard was born Thomas Straussler in what was then Czechoslovakia. His family had to flee the Nazis in 1938. Uh, He lived for a period in Singapore where his father um, was captured and killed in a Japanese prisoner of war camp before relocating to India. And he went to school in Darjeeling where his mother remarries a British officer and he only comes to Britain in 1946. And so this play is a way of him investigating that kind of buried Jewish heritage um, a Jewish heritage that he only really started to explore in the 1990s after his mother died. Since this is a play that is about history, do you want to say a little bit about how it's structured, Zoe?
0: Yeah. So this is a very, very much a, a, a sprawling epic play that, that takes history with a capital H and fuses it with the, the fate of a, of a sprawling family. So the action begins in 1899 in Vienna on the cusp of, of the new century, a very storied Moment in European um, history now and he- European culture. That moment when Freud and Klimt and the- Theodore Herzl, the the founding ideologue of Zionism, are all swirling around this 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 this, this, this epicenter of cultural richness. We see here a, a, a large family all having a lovely time coming in and out children here and there they're very well integrated there's some people who are non-jewish in the family some people are jewish it's all it's all very much jews at european jewry at its peak although there are concerns that are always around, and those obviously come much more to the fore. in the next phase or snapshot of the play, which is the 1920s, when socialism and fascism are now jostling in a much more serious way, and that's reflected in the family. The next bit of the play sees us on the cusp of complete annihilation and disaster, 1938, Kristallnacht. And then finally, there's a coda in the 1950s when fragments of this once big family
1: kind of are seen in the old flat. I think and- that 1950s coda, just if I could say, it's interesting that he ends it in 1955, which is the year in which Austria regains its independence after the Second World War. And a lot of people have discussed the fact that Austria is only able to reinvent itself after the Second World War and after you know, many years of collaboration with the Third Reich through pretending that it had been a victim. And so this Austrian setting lets him think about right at the outset this issue about memory, this issue about how far people can reinvent their pasts. Um, in new contexts and the sort of lies that people tell themselves in a way on a national level now um, about their histories. Um, How did you find the cultural references, Zoe? Did you not find it slightly laborious? So in case uh,
0: listeners hadn't picked up on this, I was not a fan of this play for a number of reasons. (laughs) And one of them was the sheer obviousness and relentlessness and sledgehammer-like way in which Stoppard Gives us history and he gives us these cultural references. Uh, so instead of an evocation of the period that I as a as an audience member felt, I was instead given a, a sort of extremely didactic sledgehammer version, um, stuffed full of cultural references, very stylized, Freud here, Mahler there. So Stoppard makes it very clear that these the heyday of Viennese culture is completely, into, is completely one and the same with, these, with this Jewish family, and it's done in a very obvious way. So at one point, one of the characters says, we literally worship culture. When we make money, that's what the money is for, to put us at the beating heart of Viennese culture. This is the promised land, and not because it's someplace on a map where my ancestors came from. We're Austrians now, Austrians of Jewish descent. We're only one in 10, but without us, Austria would be the pet Patagonia of banking, science, the law, the arts, literature, journalism. And that is just not how people talk. And it's just a very bizarre
1: way of approaching drama, in my opinion. It also panders, I think, to a sometimes kind of disappointing element in the audience in that people who go to Stop Our Plays often like to feel that they're listening to something hard and clever. And as a result, they like to perform to their neighbors in you know, either side of them in the seats that they got the joke. Um, and I sometimes feel that some of the name checking is just so much kind of intellectual baggage and a kind of sometimes a weird sort of snobbery um, to reward people who can keep up uh, with this barrage of references. In terms of keeping up, another thing that I really struggled with was quite how many characters are involved in this story. I think there's close to 30 individual named parts in the cast list. Um, and one of the first things you see on the stage, on the curtain, is a family tree. And little do you realize that that family tree is going to be essential for you to make sense of this sprawling network of family relations um, that multiplies as the play goes forward. It's impossible,
0: virtually, to keep track of who's who in this, list. and a lot of the characters don't really have a role. So why the huge, incredibly, clearly confusing cast list that makes it pretty hard to care and there was something sort of mathematical almost about about the complexity of these family relations and i think that plays in potentially interestingly to other interests of stoppards over the years to do with to do with mathematical structures
1: that go between maths itself and lived experience i think there's a big interesting thing here also about family as the way that he's choosing to tell the story Um, i remember we were both very taken with the lehman trilogy zoe yeah. Which I guess he's also yeah. using family as a way to try and map huge 20th century events. Um, in the case of Lehman, obviously, it's the development of, kind of capitalism from the 19th into the 20th century and international banking. In this case, it's a slightly more national story about Jewish identity. Um, but whereas with the Lehman trilogy, you felt that there was such vibrancy and vitality in every single character, um, partly because they were being played by the same core of actors, which was amazing. Um, this feeling feels kind of dramatically inert in lots of ways. I thought it felt a little bit flat.
0: Yeah, and Tom, you made a good observation, which is that he's trying to do a, a giant a 19th century novel, which, which do have big character lists. Like think of Buddenbrooks, for instance, by Thomas Mann. But in the context of a dramatic play, it, it just didn't work. And Lehman Brothers, by contrast, was absolutely brilliant from start to finish. There's an appetite for families as a, as a dramatic unit now and i'm thinking of the hit success of succession the netflix show which is about a a family-run business and how it passes from how how all the family members jostle for power and what inheritance and and legacy and dynasty might mean of course that's a much nastier family and it has it's not historical in the same way but it does make me think we are at a point when family has sort of never been more of a precarious concept in some ways in the sense that the, the family unit is no longer the absolute way that y- you measure your success in life or it, it needn't be the, the track you follow. Um, obviously, marriages can be wobbly uh, and increasingly people are being encouraged to find their own families in life and not to sort of owe things to their, to their elders. So I think that creates a fascination with, with these old versions of families, which are very, very tightly knit, very, very important ways of being in the world. So I think that's interesting. I just think this managed to completely bypass
1: being a compelling version of that. It's also a very Jewish device As the last thing I'd say about family yeah. is that one of the books that Stoppard cites at the introduction as having been an influence on him is um, Hair with the Amber Eyes, you know, the Edmund de book about yeah. the Frussi family, which has this big section that takes place in Vienna. And again, it's all about trying to use the sort of trappings of high culture, in this case, the collections of the family, Um, as a way to try and tell a bigger kind of chronicle of the Jews in 20th century Europe. So family as a way of telling the story about the trauma of the 20th century is a very familiar kind of device, I think, for for Jewish history. On the subject of the Jewishness of it, Zoe, how did you feel about the representation of some of the core characters? I suppose I'm thinking of uh, Hermann Merz, the sort of founder of the family firm. Well,
0: here I have to say my personal connection to this play, and which also helps explain my adverse reaction to it to some degree. (laughs) So uh, my own family history is, is descended from German Jews who had to leave in the 1930s and who were very largely assimilated and successful business people. I grew up with Two grandparents. My father's parents didn't survive long enough to really be there when I was growing up. But my mother's parents were very much German emigres uh, who'd who fled Nazi Germany. And to me, the the portrait of Jews and Jewishness on, in Stoppard's version was sort of just a cliche. It was almost it almost felt anti-Semitic in a way. Of course, it wasn't intended to be that, but it was this very loud and and obvious kind of way of, of, of presenting Jewishness. And that, that didn't ring true for me. The way that generation talked about being Jewish, as far as I know from my own German Jewish relatives, was a much more um, hidden or partial way of keeping it slightly under wraps. So while you couldn't avoid being defined by it, it was not something
1: to trumpet about. Whereas in this, as you say, he kind of theatricalizes the Jewishness with the Seder scene, you know, which is a almost kind of an F, you know, exotic element of kind of Jewish ritual is staged at the heart of the play.
0: Right. So there's another, but there is there is an aspect of the the way that the characters are done, which while they annoyed me, did ring slightly true. So especially the character of Herman, who is a real go getter. He he he's an, he's an upstart. He wants to succeed. He wants to blend in. He's converted to Catholicism, but he can never escape his Jewishness, and it, it constantly haunts him. And that sense of thwarted energy, that, that d- double feeling of we've made it now, but then knowing that you can never really make it as a Jew was, was fairly effective. Uh, and I think I'm just going to read a, a little passage which captures Hermann's annoyingness, but also his recognizability, where he says, my grandfather wore a kaftan. My father went to the opera in a top hat and I have the singers to dinner actors, writers, musicians. We buy the books, we look at the paintings, we go to the theater, the restaurant, we employ music teachers for our children. A new writer, if he's a great poet like Hoffmanthal, walks along, walks among us like a demigod. We literally worship culture. That is not how Jews talk, I can tell you. Not how (laughs) German Jews talk. On the other hand, that boastful energy which is completely undercut by the knowledge that it's fragile, was something
1: I really related to. So there's something tragic, I thought, about the representation of Hermann because he's desperate to belong. You know, he really wants to join Viennese high society as sort of symbolized by the, the jockey club. And yet you feel that the doors are closed to him. At the same time, other members of the family, like Ludwig, are interested in the ideas of Theodor Herzl and Zionism is in the air. And yet this is also shown to be a bit of a pipe dream uh, both because nobody can quite imagine Jews going back to the Holy Land, but also because later in the play, we discover that the British are actually going to stop the Jews emigrating into Palestine at the moment when they most need it. So it does feel a little bit like a family with no way out in that assimilation is shown to be a dead end, but also there are no kind of rival um, alternatives by which their Jewishness can be affirmed. And so Herman has almost sort of internalized a kind of anti-Semitism.
0: This is a small aside, Tom. You're working on a big project now about um, Jews in Britain and especially ones that, that have assimilated to some degree. Are there any obvious differences or parallels you'd want to pick out now about the way Jews trying to gain it's trying to fit in and and, and enjoy cultural ascendancy in Britain at the same time were doing things in comparison to how the picture was in Vienna at the Fantasy in the early twentieth century?
1: I think it's just interesting in what context does Jewishness become visible? Or like at what point do people care about the Jewishness of individuals? And one of the things that's interesting in Leopoldstadt is when uh, our surviving member of the family, Leo, goes to Britain, he says at one point, nobody much cared whether I was Jewish. You know, nobody ever really asked. Um, whereas, so in Britain, I think there is a sense sometimes that it was very sensitive, but in general, the kind of anti-Semitism that existed in British society was much more um, discreet in a way. It was pervasive, but also wasn't politically articulated. It was based on snobbery. It was based on kind of low-level stigma. Um, whereas in the European case, especially in Austria, we're talking about some of the first mass politics based around anti-Semitism, uh, in the case of Karl Luger. And so the status or the stakes of how you show your Jewishness are kind of completely different in that world.
0: Were there Jewish families in Britain who might be
1: this similar to the family depicted in this, to this play, to the Meritzes. It's interesting that if you think about some of the most successful families in 20th century Britain, a lot of scholars have argued that those who come from a German background are the ones who are keenest to abandon and escape from all forms of Jewish identification. Um, So interestingly, those who come from central Europe, who've come of age in Germany or in Austria, where antisemitism is so pervasive, they are the ones who, when they come to Britain, are determined to assimilate. Um, whereas, I think Jews from different backgrounds have less of a sense of stigma. They haven't been taught to think that there's something embarrassing or dirty about their Jewishness, and as a result, it can be kind of you know expressed differently. So, I think it I think it varies depending on the kind of community in some ways. Um, just, just
0: a final question on that. We'll leave it. I just, I, it's just fascinating to think about this connection between <clears throat> Jews and culture. And I just wondered if, 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 whereas the expression of it might be different, if there was a sa- the similar perception that Jews were integral to various forms of culture across the spectrum in Britain as well, regardless of how they felt about it, were Jews perceived as being integral to keeping Britain from being the Patagonia of banking and so on and so forth?
1: I mean, I absolutely think there is a story about Jews uh, expressing their patriotism, you know, by their support of the arts, uh, both in Britain, but also in France as another kind of example. And if you think about big families like the Rothschilds, it's their donations, it's their generosity to museums and to cultural institutions and to musical institutions by which they show their place kind of at the heart of these societies. So I think in both cases, culture is being used as a kind of mobility or is culture is being used as an expression of you know, citizenship and um, the tragic case in Vienna and I guess that's one of the different flavors of Leopoldstadt is that culture is then also being used against the Jews um, and Stoppard talks about various discussions about le Gou-Juif, the idea that the Jews are invading the arts and are kind of polluting the arts um, mm-hmm. that's a much more present discourse in um, 20th century uh, Vienna and 20th century Austria precisely because Jews are so predominant in certain cultural fields
0: so this all makes me think that really fascinating discussion plus my discomfort with the portrayal of the jews here it makes me wonder is there something uniquely difficult about representing jews and because we there's quite a, there's there's obviously a lot of culture that that parodies or sends up or or is based in stereotypes to some degree knowing stereotypes of uh, other ethnic minorities Asian sitcoms, films like Get Out. There was a play recently at the Hampstead Theater called The Phlebotomist, which was very much concerned with, with race. Um, and somehow those seem to work in a slightly more straightforward way. They make their point and they're also subtle. There's something almost always already uncomfortable about anything that represents Jews or Jewishness because it could so easily fall into cliche uh, and so easily be- fall into something that might be
1: offensive. I think there is a difference between communities laughing at themselves, kind of embracing some of the stereotypes that are constructed around them and the prejudices that are thrown their way, and you know proudly kind of subverting them, kind of recreating them in their own guise, versus talking about a community that has, as you say, been eradicated. Um, and there's a way in which the Holocaust sort of obviously hangs over the whole play, and it means that we're watching. Juda- you know this Jewish community at kind of several removes. It's both exotic in a British setting, it's both distant chronologically um, but it also is tinged with tragedy and I think one of the problems of the play compared to some of Stoppard's earlier work is that this stops it being very playful. Structurally everything just leads us to the final words of the play, you know, Auschwitz, repeated again and again and again. So some of the kind of freewheeling playfulness of something like Travesties you know this great play he wrote About Joyce and Lenin hanging out in 1917, all in all, happening um, in Zurich, all that kind of playfulness is replaced with something that feels much more, you know, fatalistic, um, much grimmer, um, and that means that there's much less scope for humour really in this compared to other things he's written.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think the play, uh, sorry, the film this year, or maybe it came out last year, Jojo Rabbit was absolutely fantastic. It is one of the, if not the best film or book or play or any dramatic treatment of the Holocaust and of Jews in Germany (laughs) that I've ever seen. And it was absolutely hilarious. And I think that showed, firstly, the courage of conviction of the maker that humor is something that isn't just for happy times. Humor is, is, is is a dramatic device that brings out tragedy at the same time. And I think it, it, that the sort of ludic quality, to use that pretentious term, but the idea that things can oh, be... Oh, I like ludic. You, I know you like ludic. Academic to the end. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the humor and the, the lightness of it, um, if only Stoppard had realized that actually that could have leavened his serious ambition beautifully. So the play felt incredibly didactic. I mean, I don't know if we've done justice to just how expository it is and every time we're getting a lecture okay now this is the bit where we're explaining zionism now we're explaining jewish assimilation i think there was only one bit of the history of the history lesson stoppard gives us (laughs) that, that was valuable and that was the evian conference the 1938 conference in which basically world powers got together and agreed to not allow jewish refugees into their countries so there was a there was a window of time in which the nazis said jews must leave and they could leave but the rest of the world decided to basically close off their borders to them. That's a very, very, very important part of history, which bizarrely most people don't know about. So that was like, oh, thanks, Tom, for having that in. But generally, uh, I was completely baffled by the amount of lecturing. So I saw the play with my cousin, actually, and and who obviously has a similar, if not identical, uh, family background. And we turned to each other at the break and we said, this feels like we are in a provincial American Holocaust museum, perhaps Cleveland, maybe Pittsburgh. <laughs> um, and and, uh, and, and that, was the, that was the feeling we got from these lectures. And it, it, it's, a really, it's a really surprising and disappointing way of communicating this, this history. And it was completely unnecessary.
1: I just wanted to, I totally agreed with what you said about the Evian reference, the Evian conference reference. And I think the interesting thing about the end of the play is it does start to get quite accusatory. Um, it does start to remind a British theater-going audience who might have forgotten some of this history uh, that Britain doesn't have a particularly glorious role in any of this. Um, Britain isn't helping Jewish refugees get to Palestine. Uh, Jew- Britain is allowing the Evian Conference to basically do very, very little indeed um, to help uh, these Jewish families that desperately need it. And so I think in Stoppard's defense, all of that heavy exposition, which I agree doesn't make for a very satisfying watch, is his attempt to try and remind people of a history in Britain that we've tended to kind of forget. Um, And that's sort of emblematized by the central character at the end, Leo, who is in a way a sort of uh, version of Stoppard himself. Uh, Leo, who we see as a boy in 1938, um, and who we then see again as a man in 1955, who has become, you know, from Leo Rosenbaum, has become Leonard Chamberlain. And when he comes back in 1955, he has very British attitudes. He talks about how proud he is to belong to top nation, you know, and he's very proud of how Britain almost single-handedly won the war and that Britain survived the Blitz. And all of these sort of British national myths mean that I think he really struggles to understand the experiences of uh, his relatives, who, you know, one of whom has stayed, in Austria and has gone through the ordeal of the camps and everything else, it's, it's sort of shielded him. It's made him oblivious um, to the pain that's in his midst. And so I suppose part of what Stoppard wants to do to a British audience is remind them of bits of 20th century Central European history that they've forgotten to try and sort of bring these things back to the surface.
0: Do you think there's, a, there's something here about Stoppard himself becoming um, both an establishment figure, but as an emigre? does he fit a, a bigger British group of people who fit that that emerging kind of model of bohemian or cultural national treasure the the sort of not quite british titan of the arts is there a way in which that's hovering over this this whole production
1: absolutely and i think stoppard is very proud of that you know if you look at interviews and he constantly talks about being both insider and outsider at the same time and so while i don't think this is his best play i do think this play helps understand some of the things that have made his writing special over the years. His willingness to play around with language is precisely because it is a second language for him. Um, You know, and it's interesting, if you think that he made his career with something like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is about playing with Shakespeare, uh, Leonard Chamberlain at the end of this, the boy, talks about how he thinks Shakespeare is the reason that he's proud to be English. So all of these kind of great names for him are things that he both feels very attached to, but also is aware is not quite his, or that he doesn't quite belong. Um, I suppose somebody like Lucian Freud in painting is the closest example of someone Mm. who becomes a hero of post-war British painting, but retains a sensibility which which links back to Europe, which links back to to something dissonant and something different.
0: This raises the question I was going to also ask about audience? So not just the from the perspective of the, the emigre, but do you think that there's a fascination among British audiences, the types who have made Lucien Freud so successful, the types who have filled theatre seats to see Stoppard? Is there a fascination there with Britain as home to the emigre? I think my feeling is that there is. It's part of our national myth-making.
1: I think there's, a, there's also this question um, of uh, Britishness coming through in the Leonard isn't able to talk about his Jewish identity or his Jewish experiences in the 1940s, 50s context. And so while I agree with you, Britain provided a home for some of these people after the war, it didn't let them be Jewish in that way, or it didn't let them engage with that other history. Now, in a way, they were probably quite grateful to not have to engage with that prior history. But you do get a sense of a kind of weird repression that's happened. And wasn't this the case with your own grandparents, Zoe?
0: Yeah. So my my grandparents, who were sort of scattered and dispersed and made their way to to Britain in the late 1930s, uh, abruptly stopped speaking English. uh, Sorry, abruptly stopped speaking German. And indeed, even when they were alone together, spoke English. So there was this very abrupt end to that previous life. And it wasn't the sort of thing that they felt they wanted to embrace. Uh, as part of their new British identity. But I suppose what I was driving at, Tom, was, is there, if if Jewishness is is an uncomfortable category for for British people to, for British emigres to inhabit, like Leo makes clear, is there, is the emigre figure itself a more glamorous as well as an easier way to to self-define? Do you think that actually in Britain, if Jews are feeling that they can't really... they Well, they firstly, they don't want to keep that old identity. And as my, my grandparents make clear, this is not that anyone's saying you can't speak German. They just don't want anything to do with that past yep. for a long period of time. But I think emigre is something perhaps they could identify with which had a sort of vague glamour to it and that's my question again is is there a British is there a mode of being an emigre which allows for difference but is safe in some ways and and a bit kind of continental a bit glamorous that being Jewish which often is sort of a byword for doesn't offer because Jewish is just too much. Jewish reminds people of too much bad stuff in the past at this point. There's a kind of intellectual cachet to it,
1: definitely. Um, And I think Stoppard has actually embraced bits of that in his own writing. You know, in the 1980s, he went, he tried very hard to translate bits of sort of Czech um, drama. I'm thinking of Havel, you know, he's translating Austrian literature. He wants to make himself a kind of European figure of letters in some ways. So he's been self-consciously continental and that's been part of his sort of intellectual chic. And I agree, there's a kind of chic in being an émigré, whereas being a kind of, you know, a Jew, suggests something traumatic or a kind of victimhood. So Zoe, uh, to pull this together, uh, why the hype with Leopold Stadt?
0: Well, I'm afraid that I take a cynical view of why the hype, and that is because critics are obsessed with seeming politically sensitive and correct. Timing is absolutely key for this. this play premiered um, just at the tail end of a very long Corbyn leadership. Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party for, what was it, four, four years, five years? Yep. And during his tenure, obviously, anti-Semitism became a huge swampy mess, indisputable uh, as a kind of driving force in the far left, in elements of the far left. And although the real issue at stake was often to do with the far left views of Israel, that's what, in my view, drove on the sort of incessant outpourings of vile anti-Semitism and trolling of, of Jewish MPs, especially female ones. Uh, what what everyone basically took from it wasn't so much this thing about Israel, but was just anti-Semitism, Labour Party, bad. So I think it, it's entirely bound up with the timing and the moment and the the jitteriness and the, and the heightened sensibilities around anti-Semitism and the way that some of these Far left leaders, including Ken Livingstone, who brought up uh, Nazi Zionism, kind of raised specter of the past again in a heightened way, and Jews were beginning to think about, okay, that was then, could it happen again? So I think I think critics were really reflecting that, and I think it's a shame because they should have just said it's a it's a crap play. You didn't have to say it's a great play. <laughs> In saying it's a crap play, you're not, say, you're not saying anti-Semitism isn't real, the story isn't tragic. And I've seen critics do the exact same thing with, uh, with, with other plays that deal with, with minority ethnic groups and it's excruciating and it's a shame and it's not really doing what critics are meant to be doing.
1: I think, it's, I think you're dead right. It's a disappointing play about a really important and interesting subject. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it has gone down so well is it's actually very conventional. Um, it's a play where Stoppard actually is doing something very linear um, rather than kind of more creative. It's a play in which he's reusing a lot of cliches of Vienna 1900. Um, I'm reminded of something like Woman in Gold, that recent Helen Mirren movie about the, you know, the battle over the Klimt painting being okay. restored. And at the end of this, we get a kind of Klimt painting that's gone missing. And so it plays around with a lot of kind of preconceptions and some stereotypes about Austrian history and Jewish history. Um, and if this is meant to be the play where he reveals the real stoppard, that he comes out about his Jewish heritage and he shows something of himself, it's a shame that all of that is reserved really for the final 20 minutes. That would have been a much more interesting play.
0: It would have been. And, and just to reiterate what you say about Vienna and, and Austria as this very storied, sort of almost branded history. Yeah. I, I was struck by the recent um, advertising campaign for from Visit Austria that advertised Vienna through hashtags. So it was <laughs> implying that you, you go to Vienna so that you can, you can take pictures and hashtag them and put, posted on Instagram. Vienna has become this Instagram version of, of history. And, and when I went to the Belvedere and looked at one of the Klimts, I was interested actually having seen the, the uh, Helen Mirren film, there was a selfie point with a reproduction. So, so it, it, it's a very, very self-conscious European city and history now. Anyway, that is all we have time for this week. Join us next time for Sam Mendez's 1917.